All right, school is in session. So take your seats and turn up the volume. volume. It's time for the smartest fishing show on the internet. This is the show that dives into everything fishing from tactics and gear to policy and product. Here he is, the fishing professor, Professor Sid Dobrin. So stick around, you might learn something. Cut it. Soy un pescator. I'm a fisher, baby. So why don't you kiss me? Double barrel buckshot. Soy un pescator. I'm a fisher, baby. So why don't you kiss me? Oh, in the time of chimpanzees, there was a monkey. Hey, welcome to the Fishing Professor Rodcast. I am Sid Dobrin, the Fishing Professor. And while we don't have Beck in the studio, we do have a great show for you today. I'll be sitting down with the editor of Florida Sportsman Magazine, Jeff Weekly, to talk about all kinds of fishing and to learn from this angling expert. I will also take a bourbon break today and pour out my thoughts about Woodford Reserve's Double Oak, another great bourbon in the Woodford portfolio. And then I'm going to count down my top 10 fillet knives because the Fishing Professor Rodcast is just so cutting edge. Hey, before we get to that great interview with Jeff Weekly, I want to take a moment to pay homage to our fishing ancestors and to offer up a few professorial lessons in the history of fishing. Hey, did you know that based on the fossil record, it's been estimated that fishing really started about 500,000 years ago, and that there's evidence of both Homo habilis and Homo erectus catching and eating fish. But when Homo sapiens appeared on the scene, only about 200,000 years ago did fishing really take off. And then it wasn't really until about 3500 BCE, or just around 5500 years ago, that we started using spears, nets, lines, and fishing rods to catch fish. And that mostly came out of innovations in Egypt. Ever wonder why we don't see a lot of anglers in ancient Greek art? Well, that's because in ancient Greece, fishermen had a pretty low social status, so artists weren't likely to depict us low-life anglers. Recreational fishing really started to evolve in the 15th century, and we start to get writing about recreational fishing and more art about recreational fishing. And by the 18th century, recreational fishing was a really uh, just a wealthy class thing. But as anglers started making better and more inexpensive equipment and tackle, recreational fishing started spreading across the classes. And by the 19th and 20th centuries, fishing became a recreational activity for just about everyone. So every time you cast that rod and feel the tug of a fish on the end of your line, just remember you're participating in an old tradition and say a few words of thanks to our Homo erectus ancestors. Maybe throw in a little kinky Friedman out there to help in the offering of our thanks. I left Barber College searching for knowledge, went to the university. I must confess her, this lady professor, she turned me on to anthropology. Now I'm a homo erectus, got to connect this bone that I discovered yesterday. Tyrannosaurus lived in the forest, died because his heart got in the way. And hey, if you're digging the Rodcast, be sure to subscribe by clicking that subscribe button on whatever platform you're using to access the Rodcast. And be sure to spread the word and be sure to connect us with all of your erectus friends and fishing family. Hey, welcome to the Red Rodcast. Let's get casting.
All right. I am excited today to have in the inshore offshore digital studio, the editor of Florida Sportsman, Jeff Weekly. Florida Sportsman, of course, is the multimedia resource that provides where to and how to fishing information in Florida. Florida Sportsman magazine first appeared back in 1969 with a mission to educate and entertain readers and viewers while developing and empowering citizen stewards of the state's waters, lands, and wildlife resources. I, for one, have been a fan of the magazine since I was a little kid, and it's been a source of my own fishing education since I was little, and my grandfather used to save his subscription copies for me to read when I'd visit him in Jacksonville. Now, Jeff Weekly began working as a staff editor at Florida Sportsman back in 1995, just after he graduated with a degree in English woohoo, from Stetson University. <laughs> he is an award-winning writer who has written hundreds of articles covering subjects ranging from fly fishing for snook to trolling for wahoo, from how-to articles to commentary about Florida fishing policies and issues. He's been recognized with awards multiple times by the Florida Outdoor Writers Association. He is the author of the book, Sportsman's Best, Kayak Fishing, which was published in 2012. Jeff is also the founding editor, one of the founding editors of Shallow Water Angler Magazine. And from 2005 through 2011, Jeff co-hosted the Florida Sportsman and the Shallow Water Angler television series. Now, Lore says that Jeff has fished nearly every stretch of Florida's coastline from Fernandina to the Dry Tortugas and all the way around the Gulf of Mexico to the Alabama state line. And he brings expertise from having been a teenager in Alabama, where he fished most of the Alabama coast, as well as the Bahamas, Costa Rica, Belize, the Caribbean islands, not to mention the hundreds of miles he's hiked and fished along the Blue Ridge trout streams. He's fished Alaska, Montana, Wyoming, New Mexico, and a long list of other places. To say that Jeff knows a thing or two about fishing would be an understatement. Through his 27 years at Florida Sportsman, he's been witness to the evolution of the recreational fishing industry, to policy and resource changes, to trends and fads. I am really excited to have him on the Fishing Professor Show. Jeff, thanks for being on the Rodcast. Oh, thanks for having me, Sid. I really appreciate it. And you know, Before we get to the Florida Sportsman stuff and the fishing-specific stuff, I want to jump in the Wayback Machine and go back to 1994, the year before you started working with Florida Sportsman when you were a student at Stetson University. And I'd like you to tell me about the shark bite and the subsequent DNA discovery 24 years after that bite. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, I was, was just talking to some guys about shark issues earlier this morning. I'm doing some research into some possible uh, devices and advice for deterring uh, shark attacks while we're fishing. Uh, when it comes to surfing, that's maybe a different story. But yeah, no, I, I got I got nipped uh, up by Flagler Beach uh, on my right foot while paddling a surfboard and uh, treated up there at the uh, hospital in Bunnell, had about 25 stitches and, you know, crutches for a couple of weeks. Not a, not a terrific injury. Um, but, uh, you know, a, a couple of years ago, I was started running again and, and I uh, felt sort of a blister on top of one of my toes. And as I was rubbing that blister, I felt a little sharp edge in there and reached down with a pair of tweezers and plucked it out. And it was a shark tooth. It been in your foot for 24 years. Yeah. 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 I was working around there. I guess I had shark DNA in my body, but, uh, I, I had read something about a, uh, uh, Florida Museum of Natural History in Gainesville at Shark Research Center there, and they had done a, uh, a DNA processing of a, a shark tooth extracted from a young man up in the Northeast who'd been bitten uh, somewhat recently at the time. 
and I think they determined that fish may have been a, a sandbar shark. But uh, I, I had seen that article, and so I reached out to um, I reached out to Gavin Naylor, who was the head of the uh, program there, and asked if he thought they could do anything with that little fragment that came out of my foot. And uh, they put it through their their centrifuge or whatever techniques they used, and they were able to determine that it was a black tip shark. Still had enough DNA in there to register. Oh, that's really interesting. So given that experience and given what you just said about some of the work you're doing with uh, uh, shark deterrent right now, and also given your entrenchment in recreational fishing, what are your thoughts about sharks on shark conservation, shark fishing, shark deterrence, and what's the stuff you're working on now with that? Well, you know, I'm, I'm actually just sort of wading into it right now. So I, I don't know that I'm necessarily ready to go into a full, uh, you know, list of, of the systems I'm look, looking at. But there, you know, there are a couple of different possibilities for, uh, uh, you know, certain types of magnets or, or other types of, uh, you know, materials and, and concepts that could be used. I'm sort of early in my research right now. I mean, generally, you know, we've been sort of distributing the advice that the fisheries managers have been, you know, offering over the last few years, which is, you know, if sharks are really bothering you in a fishing spot, you know, frankly, it's probably time to move or, or try a different technique that, that uh, you know, would result in fewer interactions. Um, but, you know, it can be frustrating for some people who are accustomed to, you know, fishing a favorite reef or a favorite, you know, stretch of inshore water. And, you know, these sharks are populations have been rebounding and you know sharks are doing what sharks do i have to say that over the last couple of years i've heard from a number of anglers that there are too many sharks in our waters and that we need to call some i particularly heard this from uh the southwestern part of the state um and you know that idea that we can't get our permit to the boat because there are too many sharks yeah i i i'm, I'm sort of in a listening mode right now I don't necessarily have an opinion one way or another on that. It's, uh, you know, questions of, of balance in the ecosystem are, you know, sort of difficult. You know, you got sort of the perspective of the observer and, you know, none of us, frankly, have really been here all that long to maybe have a full understanding of what, you know, a natural balance might look like. But uh, these are certainly important questions. And, uh, you know, they're, they're reckoning with these questions on, you know, on, on all coasts and at the state and federal fisheries levels. And, um, you know, there's some universities and different private research centers that are, you know, studying some of the possible options. So, you know, we'll, we'll see what we can figure out. Yeah, absolutely. It'll be interesting to see what unfolds in the next couple of years. So you and I are both avid kayak anglers. And in 2012, you published a book about kayak fishing. And as you and I have discussed in the past, kayak fishing has had a big impact on the fishing industry and on fishing itself. So talk to me a little bit about kayak fishing and the influence the kayak revolution has had on recreational fishing. Well, that's a good question, Sid. I, you know, I, I someone asked me not long ago, uh, you know, to kind of reflect back on the, you know, the years that I've been here with Florida sportsmen and, you know, chronicling, you know, the fishing and things that have gone on around Florida and, and maybe some of the things that I thought were, you know, among the most important developments. And, and honestly, I'd, I'd have to say, you know, the development of the roto-molded sit-on-top fishing kayak, you know, sort of the modular uh, boat that you can customize for pretty much any kind of fishing you'd, you'd want to do. I think that really is one of the biggest developments uh, in, in sport fishing in the last 25 years. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's democratized access to, you know, many types of waters and places that, 
you know, shorebound anglers might not have otherwise been able to reach without a boat. Uh, it, it's taken longtime power boaters in the opposite direction. You know, guys have learned that, you know, there's places and times where a, a paddle or a pedal driven kayak is, you know, maybe a su- superior, uh, you know, fishing machine. And so I think everyone's been kind of looking at those boats and thinking about you know, how we can use them. I'm going to be curious too, given both the recent rise in fuel costs and the difficulties the boating industry is seeing and being able to supply boats to match the demand, whether or not we're in for a sort of second kayak fishing revolution in the next couple of years. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see. I mean, honestly, I, I've been thinking about it. I mean, there, there are places that I enjoy fishing, you know, kind of off the beaten path along some of the beaches here in, in Southeast Florida. And, you know, it, it's a, it's a little bit of a haul for my, you know, my offshore boat. And, you know, when gas gets up close to $5 a gallon, you know, I start doing the money, you know, start doing the calculations on it. And well, if I could, if I could wheel a, a seaworthy kayak on some balloon tires across the sand and, you know, paddle half a mile out to the spots I want to fish, well, that might be something I think about doing. Absolutely. So you kind of anticipated my next question when you started the answer before. And I was going to ask, since you since 95, when you joined Florida Sportsman, what are the biggest changes you've seen in fishing during that time? So kayaks aside, what else have you seen change? Well, you know, early in my career was, you know, sort of the dawn of, of you know, the, 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 the effects of, of the net limitation amendment. And we saw obviously a, a you know, a resurgence of, of redfish, pompano, uh, sea trout, and a, a renewed interest in fishing for those species, as particularly in the late 1990s. Um, and that, you know, along with it came attendant developments in boat design. You know, the bay boat emerged, you know, from, from a, you know, a hybridization of the longtime pulling skiff, which was used in the Florida Keys and Biscayne Bay, you know, to chase bonefish and permit tarpon. And then we had, you know, the, the 20, 20 foot Makos, the 20 foot Duskies, we had offshore center consoles. And, uh, you know, as time went on and anglers around the state, you know, realized that we had all these wonderful fishing opportunities close to us and the populations were doing well, you know, we saw a hybridization of boat design, which led to the bay boat. So that certainly is high on the list. Um, it's not to say that there aren't still lots of applications for the pulling skiffs and the small offshore boats, but you know, that was a big design change. Uh, braided line, you know, the, the, the development of, of gel spawn polyethylene braided lines, I think that played a pretty big role in, in uh, developing people's, you know, fishing techniques, maybe their appreciation for artificial lures. Uh, you know, guys were able to reach out and cast farther, uh, more authoritative hook sets things that would have been difficult to do with, you know, monofilament line, you know, in the 1980s, suddenly, you know, in the early 2000s, mid 2000s, guys discovered that, you know, you could start your day, you know, not with the, the, the cumbersome loading of the live well with live bait, but, you know, start with some jigs, spoons, little plugs, and, and you've got tackle, you know, long casting, high modulus graphite rods, you know, low diameter, zero stretch braided line, you could, you know, rifle shot these lures across the flats and, and hit underneath the mangroves with astonishing accuracy. And so, you know, we became better fishermen as a result, I think of that. Along those same lines, over these last 25 plus years, 
What have been the stories you've covered that you think are the coolest things you've covered, the awesome stuff you've gotten to write about? Boy, that's a good one. I, uh, I'd have to say swordfish is certainly high on the list. And, and while I haven't, I haven't invested myself personally very heavy into that fishery, it's, it's a very uh, uh, technique-specific um, fishery that's kind of out of the range of my boat and, and my time, but I've enjoyed covering it, particularly as I covered the uh, many of the initiatives to you know, restrict the use of long lines in the Straits of Florida and portions of the Gulf of Mexico in the late 90s. And that finally came to pass in the early 2000s. And, you know, to see, you know, to see the consequences of that, to see the revitalization of, of those tremendous fisheries out there in deep water was, was really, you know, cathartic and something I enjoyed covering. And then to read about, you know, the development of fishing techniques and, and you know, the excitement that's brought to so many anglers. I think that's definitely high on my list. Excellent. So let's flip that question. What are the pieces you've gotten the most negative response from readers about? Negative response from readers. Well, I, I, uh, I don't know. Um, we don't get a lot of negative response. Well, that's great. I, <laughs> yeah. Otherwise, you know, I, I might, might not be sitting here <laughs> if we had a lot of that over the years, but yeah. uh I think I think guys like to hear the real story. You know, I think if if you try to, uh, you know, build a smoke screen or, you know, divert people's attention away from from obvious issues, I think people get frustrated with that. And so we've we've generally tried to tell the truth, you know, when it comes to you know water quality and, you know, the effects of, you know, changes in, in fisheries habitat. You know, we've tried, you know, we don't mince words. You know, if, if there's an algae bloom and a fish kill, well, we show it you know, and, and, uh, we, we try our best to, you know, get at the causes of those, you know, problems. And we try to hold politicians accountable where we can. And, and, uh, so, so that's, that's sort of our, our take on that. Let me pick up on that. I got a couple of questions related to that, you know, and one of the things Florida sportsman has been famous for over the years has been its vocal role in conservation efforts. And certainly a lot of this has to do with Carl Wickstrom's dedication to protecting Florida waters and of course, we see that commitment carried out on through the work you do, through Blair Wickstrom and others work in the magazine. How important is that dedication to conservation to what Florida Sportsman sees as its mission? Uh, I, I'd say it's absolutely, you know, front and center. And, and frankly, it ought to be front and center for, for, you know, our listeners and for any anglers, particularly people who are moving to Florida. You know, I, I was speaking with a gentleman yesterday about, you know, he, 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 like many Floridians, you know, a native Floridian, he's sort of jaded and, and where he lives, he's, he's seen traffic and he's seen, you know, boat traffic increase. And he's, he's excited to move to North Carolina. He wants to go to the mountains. He's, he's found this uh, mountaintop cabin and he's discovered these trout streams of Western North Carolina that, that, you know, he perceives to be pristine and unfished. And I sort of was chuckling inside as I was listening to him because I know that area and I know how much fishing pressure those streams get. And I know a lot of the issues that they're dealing with up there. And, you know, the same thing is happening as, you know, people are flocking to Florida, you know, from the Northeast. I mean, here in Stewart, where I live, you know, we see a lot of tags from New Jersey, New York, Connecticut, Massachusetts. And, you know, and that's great. I mean, it, it, it's, we live in a, an amazing country. I mean, we, we've got the ability to travel safely. 
Um, you know, we've got the freedom to choose where we go. You know, in Florida, we've got access to great fisheries. You know, we've got boat ramps and marinas and facilities. But, you know, the people who are coming, they need to know that, you know, it's not it's not always roses. You know, there's there's things going on down here that, that require our attention and our commitment, uh, you know, to solving some of the water quality problems we, that, that we have. And so, uh, yeah, we're going to continue to keep that central to our coverage and, and really, you know, thinking about the new residents that are coming down, you know, what do they need to, to know? How can we empower them? You know, once they buy a boat and they get out on the water and, you know, and suddenly, you know, next fall, they've got a red tide and they, they can't go out and fish because they, they can't breathe. And so what do they do? You know, how can we help them understand where to go from there? Let's stick with this for a second and let's jump back to 94 when Florida voters voted to ban inshore nets in Florida waters and what was one of the most decisive political battles in Florida history. And that campaign to ban the nets was orchestrated and led by Carl Wickstrom and Florida sportsmen. And you began working with the magazine the year after that referendum passed. That moment was certainly a big historical moment for the state and for the legacy of the SOS net bans. And it's been ingrained into the reputation of Florida sportsmen. How did that moment now 27 years ago affect how we think about fishing in Florida and also how it highlighted the role of politics in fishing? Well, I mean, it, 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 it certainly, I, I think it was a, an empowering moment because, you know, it, at the time you had anglers, you know, in many different parts of the state who were, you know, making the same observations of, of fisheries declines and in some cases, you know, conflicts on the water with, with you know, different types of gear and, and the things that they were observing. And I think, you know, there's sometimes there's a sense of helplessness. You know, you're out there by yourself on a boat and you see something and you think, man, am I, am I, am I the only person noticing this? Is there anything that I could do about this? And, you know, people discovered then and still relevant now, the answer is no, you're not the only person who's noticing that. You know, when you see a patch of seagrass that's dying off on a stretch of river that you've long fished, you're not the only one who's noticing that. And, and when you reach out and you band together and you, you know, you put together your combined voices and take it to the right places, you can implement change. You know, change can occur. Uh, and, and with the net ban, you know, that that change in that case, you know, there was a lot of different initiatives, you know, via fisheries management commissions at the time. Um, but eventually uh, amending the Constitution was the only solution. You know, there was too much political uh, uh, control over fisheries decisions in that era. And so that was the solution that came about. So it was a, it was a creative solution to a complicated problem at the time. But the biggest lesson is anglers realize that, that, you know, they can observe things, they can find other anglers, and they can make change for the better. And let's face it, Florida Sportsman has certainly not been shy about its politics. I mean, I saw a Facebook post from Florida Sportsman a couple of months ago that started with the words, swindlers, hucksters, and snake oil salesmen. Mm -hmm. That's what we have in Tallahassee right now, right now. What's the logic of a very visible magazine like Florida Sportsman taking such strong political stances, even beyond the commonplace editorial? Well, I mean, I mean, it's it, it's really out of necessity, honestly. I mean, you know, we recognize what we have in Florida, you know, and, and 
people who write for the magazine, you know, we love being here. It's not just, it's not just a business for me. It's not just a, a business for, for Blair Wickstrom. It's not just a business for contributors, you know, such as yourself. I mean, you're, you're a passionate angler. You know, we, we love this state. We love what we have. And, you know, we'd like to see it continue, uh, you know, and, and it really is going to take all of us and, and our, our collective energy to ensure that that's the case, that we can move forward. And so it would be, uh, it would be short-sighted to, you know, publish a magazine that's strictly about how to catch fish and where to go catch fish without letting people know that, you know, there are things that we need to do to ensure that we can continue to catch those fish. Let's shift gears here a bit. You know, obviously there's no way I can ask you about all the articles you've written over the years, but I want to pick out one or two and talk about them because of the kinds of advice you provided in those pieces. I want to ask you about a piece you wrote in 2014 called Six Ways to Lose a Fish, which of course echoes a little Simon and Garfunkel there too. I get it. As I recall, the piece looks at six lost fish scenarios. It's a unique piece because it's not about how to catch fish, but a how not to lose fish piece, which assumes the primary part of the catching, the hooking, has already been accomplished. What do you remember about the advice you gave in that piece, and how would you convey that advice now? <laughs> Ironically, I, I, I don't remember the specific piece. Uh, I remember writing it, but yeah, there are certainly things like that always come to mind anytime we're on the water. Uh, you, you know, I was... You know, uh, you know, keeping a tight line. You know, we hear that often. It's sort of a cliche at this point. Keep your line tight. You know, don't give them any slack. Well, there's a lot to that. You know, and it's you know, it's sort of about having things set up right. You know, from the get go, making sure you've got your drag set right before you go. I was on a boat with a guy uh, a couple weeks ago, and uh, you know, you just get used to fishing with your own gear. You know, and, and you know what where things are set. And, uh, you know, we had a, had a reel go off and, you know, it, the drag hadn't been set right, you know, and so there was a little bit of slack in there. And, and uh, so we lost a fish. So it's, you know, paying attention to your gear, you know, thinking about what you're, you need to do before you get out there. That's real important. Uh, yesterday, I was, I was in a tackle shop here at Stewart. I was in White's Bait and Tackle, which is featured in the current issue that's coming out, the, uh, the May issue. We do a little series on classic bait and tackle shops. And, in one corner of the shop, they had a couple of these blue folding uh, Stowmaster nets, which I just I just think are great. I mean, they're, I'm not paid by Stowmaster; they're not an advertiser. They're just a, but it's a good piece of gear. Uh, you can pull these things out of a little hatch. You can unfold them. You got a 20 to 24 inch, 20 by 24 inch hoop. You can get a larger hoop if you need it. But a net, I mean, a net is a great way to make sure you catch a fish. You know, even bigger fish like Kobe, everybody wants to reach for a gaff. You know, if, if the first thing you do when you hook a cobia is reach for a gaff, you know, you're, you might be heading down a, a, a road of calamity there by the time that fish is next to the boat. So, you know, that's another good thing, you know, having the right gear to handle fish. All right. So another piece you did that really, I'm going to come back to gear in a second, actually, but another piece that you did that really stuck with me was from back in 2016 as part of, part of the offshore seminar columns. This was a piece about using floats offshore when drift fishing. This is an interesting piece that brings some familiar inshore strategy to offshore scenarios. How much of your thinking about fishing strategies involves these kinds of, let's see if this works scenarios, and do you use this strategy offshore regularly? Yeah, I mean, that's sure. I mean, you know, we're always, you know, we're always thinking, uh, you know, sort of, 
comprehensively and, you know, the experiences that we've had, you know, last week will inform, you know, what we're doing today. And uh, you might, you know, might hear of a tip from somebody and think, well, man, maybe that would work, you know, in here as well. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm always sort of, you know, looking for commonality among fishing techniques and things that I can do things, you know, ways to make the day easier. And the float is a good example of how to make something a little easier on you. You know, a lot of these baits that we use offshore, you know, a blue runner, for example, a blue runner is a very strong bait fish, uh, strong willed too. You know, they have their own sense of where they want to go and, and they can, you know, they can pull a line, you know, and, and if you're going to be fishing more than one of them, those things will frequently tangle, you know, they might run under your motor, get tangled up in your prop. But if you put a float above them, well, you can have a, a good idea of where that bait fish is. And uh, it helps you sort of with managing your spread. Might also convey an advantage, you know, for certain species, if you want to keep that bait high in the water column where sailfish or a, a dolphin might be more likely to grab it. Well, the float works well for that. So it's just a simple little solution, you know, for a couple of different problems that we might encounter. Yeah, it, it seems similar to a piece you did a while back also about using live shrimp offshore, which seems a little bit unconventional, but it was a, you know, another great idea for bringing inshore strategy to offshore situation. Oh, yeah. And of course, you know, in the last few years, you know, speaking of you know, developments in the fishery, I mean, I, you know, people have you know, sort of discovered that hogfish, which are, you know, for many years was sort of a traditional, you know, this is a spear fishing fish. We don't catch them on hook and line. Well, people figured out that you can catch them on hook and line. And they're, you know, they're by and large crustacean feeders and live shrimp is an excellent bait for them. And so I think you'll find that, you know, a, a good proportion of, of hardcore bottom fishermen all around Florida, you know, they make sure they take some live shrimp on their trips offshore. You know, obviously it's a great mangrove snapper bait, but I mean, it is, it's what you want if you're going to go for hogfish. Yeah, absolutely. I thought that was one of the cool kind of uh, discoveries that were made in the last decade. Cause as a spear fisherman, to me, that was always the target was, you know, hogfish, but then we could get them on hook and line was just a great moment. Yeah. So you mentioned bay boats and you mentioned braided line and uh, clearly Florida sportsman, both through its advertising, through its articles, introduces a lot of anglers to new tackle and new gear. And each year, I'm, you know, let's admit it. I see you at ICAST new product showcase, checking out all the new tackle and the gear that companies are releasing. So braided line and bay boats aside, and without treading on the toes of your advertisers, what have been some of the other tackle and gear innovations over the years that have impressed you the most? Hmm. Well, you know, the development of, of saltwater hard baits is, is a good example. Uh, you, you know, the, the, the lip plug, you know, made famous, you know, many, many years ago, you know, by Rapala, you know, the lip minnow plug. Well, that familiar shape has been, you know, converted into, you know, numerous, uh, you know, ballistic grade, you know, saltwater proof models from a variety of makers. You know, we use them for trolling. We use them for casting. Uh, you can get some that'll dive, you know, 30 or 40 feet with great big plastic lips. You can get others that swim, you know, a foot or two under the surface, any kind of pattern you can dream of, um, you know, and, and the makers. And, and you know, Rapala builds some of those. Uh, Yozuri, Nomad, there's, uh, uh, you know, uh, Berkeley's got some that are coming out. You know, these are versatile lures. And, and again, you know, you don't have to go bother with catching bait or rigging bait, but you can put one of these plugs out there and catch, boy, anything from, you know, trout inshore to Wahoo out in deep blue. 
So that's certainly one of them. The hardware as well on those lures, you know, they've, they've, you know, they're, they're adding saltwater grade split, you know, split rings and, and heavy duty hooks, you know, and they've worked on finishes. So there's been a lot in that, in that, in that uh, department. So uh, electronics is, is an obvious one, you know, the, de- the development of sonar, you know, now we've got side scan sonar, we've got, you know, 360 sonar, uh, you know, the, the companies are, are playing around with, you know, different, you know, arrays of, of frequencies and, and mixing those to optimize the image for specific water depths. So that's certainly been, been another big one. And that's happened over the last 20, 25 years. Do you think that the development of um, those kinds of new lures and new kinds of electronics change the ways we fish or do the ways we fish demand these new developments? I think a little of both, uh, a little of both, I, you know, so, sonar by way of example, you know, the, the side scan and sort of the, the out scanning transducers, you know, those have been a tool utilized by the commercial fishing industry for many years, you know, 40 or 50 years. Uh, but it was only, you know, in the last 20 years or so that, that, you know, companies were able to scale that technology and bring it to us, you know, on an affordable level. And, uh, you know, the bass fishermen obviously were early pioneers and, and, you know, what do we do with this? You know, how do we do, you know, they know exactly what to do with it. You know, we're going to find these fish along a grass edge. We're going to find a shell bar, these little features that, you know, we would otherwise just sort of hunt for, you know, intuitively or sort of by the Braille method, you know, on the lakes. Well, the saltwater guys, it took them a little while to maybe understand what to do with that technology. You know, we use sonar for many years to, well, let's find the wreck or let's mark the fish on the wreck. But when the side scan came out, you know, and with some of these 360 systems came out, well, that, that created some possibilities that I think some guys are, are, are beginning to realize, you know, finding schools of bait. You know, if you're trying to locate a, a school of sardines, you know, if you can use that side scan sonar to, to reach out there 80, 100 feet, you know, either side of the boat, well, that'll shorten your, your morning bait catching chores. So, you know, we didn't come to the, electronics company and say, Hey, help us find greenie schools. But when they brought that technology you know, to our boats, it was something we realized, Hey, this is what we can use this for. So that was sort of a happy, happy intersection there. That's excellent. Yeah. That's a great, great point. So to wrap this up one, and I do appreciate your time, but to wrap this up, one of the things I ask all of the guests here on the fishing professor show is what is your grail fish? I mean, you've gotten to fish in a lot of places around the world. Clearly, you're focused on Florida fishing, but what is your grail fish? What's the fish you still want to find, that bucket list fish for you? <laughs> Probably a muskie. <laughs> <laughs> That's excellent. Yeah. And I'm not going to find one in Florida, although, you know, you can get sort of close. You know, we've got, we've got chain pickerel in Florida. Uh, you know, the, the mini muskie, if you will, but, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll have to fulfill that one somewhere up North of Kentucky. That sounds good. Uh, yeah. My grandfather used to love pickerel fishing in the lakes and, uh, around Jacksonville area. So, uh, I get the desire for the larger muskie version. Jeff, I can't thank you enough for being on the Rodcast. I'm really grateful for what you and Florida Sportsman provide for us. And I appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today. Thanks so much for being on the Rodcast. Thank you, Sid. It's been a pleasure.
right, it is time for the bourbon break. And I got to say, I could use a break today. And what a better way to take a bourbon break than to take a look at Woodford Reserve's Double Oaked Whiskey. Now, I'm guessing that many of you are familiar with Woodford Reserve bourbon as it has really risen in popularity over the last 25 years. But I'm guessing that fewer of you are familiar with Woodford Reserve's Doubled Oak, which first appeared about 10 years ago in, 10, in 2012. The Woodford Doubled Oak is straight bourbon. In fact, it is Woodford Reserve's select bourbon that, as the name confers, is rebarreled from a charred oak barrel in its first year after distillation to a virgin toasted oak barrel. That is, the bourbon is aged for a while in one kind of oak barrel and then moved to a differently charred barrel for the remainder of the aging process. This process, of course, really emphasizes the oaky, woody flavors of the bourbon. So basically what Woodford does is age their regular bourbon as they normally do, and then pour it into a newer barrel for an additional aging time. What this does is makes the flavor more complex, more layered. And as I said, it really emphasizes the wood flavors that the oak provides the bourbon. You can see it, too, in the coloration as the bourbon is a deep, dark brown with hints of copper, but leaning closer to coffee than it is to tea. In fact, when you get that first nose of the bourbon, that oak takes center stage. There's certainly some sweetness here, too, but the oak is the dominant smell. The palate, though, is sweet and, of course, woody. The mash bill is 72% corn, 18% rye, and 10% malted barley, which explains the sweetness with the mix of the woody. <laughs> I'll admit that when I first smelled the double oaked, I worried that the wood would completely overtake the other flavors of the bourbon, like the way wood smoke can permeate the smell of everything it encounters. However, the sweetness of the corn rye mix rides shotgun to the oak very well, resulting in a woody, sweet, vanilla-like flavor. And as you might expect, the oak also elevates a leathery taste that is both pleasant and comforting. Usually with a deep wood taste like this, I'd expect some hints of dark fruit like cherries, but I really don't get that here. The finish is the real highlight, as the darkness of the wood flavor starts popping out a spicier flavor with hints of smoke, cocoa, caramelized brown sugar, and a bit of toasted marshmallow. Okay, but maybe closer to a burnt marshmallow. I will say that the dominant wood taste isn't going to be for everyone. Woodford's work to develop the doubled oak finishing process has resulted in a respectable oaky bourbon but it's going to find its home with connoisseurs who want something more unique and complex. I happen to like the double oak with a cigar as I find the smoky woodiness of the Woodfords complements the smoke of the cigar. Probably best by a campfire to get some additional wood smoke. But if you're looking for something to pour over ice for a light after-work cocktail, this may be a little bit too heavy. I will admit, I haven't mixed the double oak yet, but as I'm thinking about it, I'm betting the heavy wood taste might, might work really well in a barbecued old fashioned to work with the sweetness of that drink and the smokiness of the glass. So those are my thoughts on Woodford Reserve Double Oak, which is sitting proudly on my shelf with its Woodford brothers and sisters. As always, and as a final note, my regular disclaimer, please keep in mind that the Fishing Professor Bourbon Break reviews are neither sponsored nor supported. The distillers have not sent me samples nor do they influence my reviews at all, though, as always, I am open to sponsorship, bribery, and extortion. The bourbons I review are purchased out of pocket, and my reviews are based on my own tasting experiences. Hey, before we wrap up and get back into the fish, 
Let me give a quick shout out to Rick's on Duval Street in Key West, where many a devastating hangover has begun. So in the words of one of my favorite authors, Hunter S. Thompson, let us toast to animal pleasures, to escapism, to rain on the roof and instant coffee, to unemployment insurance and library cards, to absinthe and good-hearted landlords, to music and warm bodies and contraceptives, and to the good life, wherever it is and whenever it happens to be. Yeah, that's Hunter S. Thompson for you. As always, if you have comments about this week's bourbon break, free, feel free to email me at sid at inventifishing.com. If you have a bourbon you want me to consider, just shoot me an email and I'll send you my address so you can send me a case or three. And now let's get back to the broadcast. All right, I think it's time for this week's top 10 list. In this week's countdown, I want to take a look at my top 10 fillet knives. Now, first, a few caveats. When I say fillet knives, I'm limiting what I'm including in this list to mass market fillet knives. I'm not talking about high-end cutlery here. I'm not talking about those knives, great as they may be, that you buy at the gourmet stores or high-end kitchen supply stores while you're picking up your tulip glasses, crepe pans, and melon ballers. I'm talking about the knives we buy in tackle stores. And I'm not talking about custom knives made here either. It's true, there may not be a better feeling than having a custom design knife in your hand when skinning out a fish. But let's face it, custom blades can be expensive and some of us wear through fillet knives just fast enough that it would be a shame to put something as beautiful as a custom made knife through that kind of grind. However, if you want a serious custom made fillet knife, Check out Olive Forge and my brother from another mother, Master Forger Ed Braun. He'll do you right with a great custom knife. He made me a great fillet knife with an antler handle carved into the body of a bull shark. Beautiful work of art. But when I've got a cooler full of salmon or flounder or whatever that needs that kind of work, I ain't filleting it with my Olive Forge knife. Too pretty. So these are the best fillet knives I've worked with. They are the knives you have in your tackle boxes on your fillet tables. These are the off-the-rack knives that do our dirty work year after year. Oh, and one other thing, I'm not talking about any electric knives in this look list. Look, I get it. When you're cleaning a ton of fish, electrics are useful. But let's stay pure today and stick with the fixed blades. So here we go. Coming in at number 10, I'm going to get a slice in with Cabela's Alaskan Guide Filet Knife. This is a great signature series knife produced for Cabela's by Buck Knives. It features a spring S30V steel blade. It is, of course, a full tang blade. And the rosewood handle is a great aesthetic feature. The handle is styled in scale fashion with the wood mounted to either side of the blade. So you can see that it's a full tang blade. It's got great corrosion resistance and holds an edge as good as any stainless steel blade out there. It's an 11 inch knife with a six inch blade. I also appreciate the leather sheath that comes with the knife. So at number 10, we've got Cabela's Alaskan Guide Filet Knife. Add number nine, got another buck knife blade. The Buck Clearwater Filet Knife. This filet knife is 15 and a quarter inches long with a nine inch blade. It's a full tang blade with an anti-slip rubberized handle. It's a really flexible blade, but the thing that catches my eye about this knife is that it's a three-edged blade, which really means that the back of the blade's tip and part of the blade's back is honed sharp so that you get a cutting edge on both sides of the blade's end. 
The 12C27 Sandvik steel is corrosion resistant, and it does a great job of holding its edge over time. And number eight, I'm going to sing the praises of Kershaw's 7-inch Clearwater Filet. This is a smaller knife that is designed for cleaning small to medium-sized fish. So think about trout, Spanish mackerel, not tuna or swordfish. I like the co-polymer non-slip grip on this knife, and I really appreciate that the designers have highlighted the handle with a neon orange highlight for visibility. Though I have to admit, I haven't ever found myself in a situation where I'm freaking out. I can't see my fillet knife, but Kershaw has me covered just in case. The blade is Japanese 420J2 stainless steel, and it's flexible, but not overly so. It also comes with a great sheath. At number seven, I'm giving shouts out to the Martinini Finish Filet Knife. Part of the reason I love this knife, I will admit, is that my grandfather had one, so I always thought it must be awesome. Now, I need to be clear that the Martinini makes a ton of filet knives, some really high-end stuff like their Condor series, but for this countdown, I'm sticking with their classic filet knife, which comes in a 10, 15, and 19-centimeter version and has been around for more than 50 years. These knives have great varnished birch handles, a stainless chrome blade, and a leather sheath. Flat out a classic fillet knife. I'm putting Cast King Spartacus fillet knife at number six. Now, some of you may ask why I'm putting the Spartacus knife instead of Cast King's five-inch fillet knife, and that's because I tend to think of the five-inch knife as a bait knife, not as a fillet knife, despite the name. So number six goes to Cast King Spartacus. And yes, the Spartacus is available in four models, a 9-inch serrated fillet knife, a 9-inch strong fillet knife, and a 9-inch fillet knife, as well as a 7-inch fillet knife. And I'll be honest, I've only worked with the 9-inch fillet knife. I assume the 9-inch strong fillet knife has a stronger backbone for breaking bones when necessary. They're all made with 8CR14 stainless steel. The steel has a high chromium content to resist corrosion, making them especially good for saltwater work. They're also coated with Keracoat ceramic finish to add to that corrosion resistance. The plastic handle is made from Creighton G polymer with high UV protection. And yeah, I read that on the Casking webpage and actually didn't have the slightest idea of what Creighton G polymers are. I know that polymers are substances or materials that consist of very large molecules or macromolecules. And I know that Creighton G series polymers are made by the Creighton company, according to Creighton. You ready for this? And I quote, Creighton G polymers are the strongest, most highly dilutive, and most compatible with polyfins and minerals and oils of all the sterenic thermoplastic block copolymers. Creighton G polymers are second generation styrenic block copolymers with a hydrogenated mid-block of styrene, ethylene, butylene, styrene, styrene block copolymers. Huh. Apparently they're UV resistant. So there you have it. Casking Spartacus fillet knife, knife handles are made of that stuff. They also come with a sheath great knife in polymer science. Okay, sitting in my number five position are the CUDA titanium bonded fillet knives. Now, let me say out front, I love CUDA products. What Rick Constantine is doing with CUDA products is just great, and the CUDA titanium knives are excellent knives. And if you want to see my full review of CUDA titanium bonded knives, look for that review on the Inventive Fishing YouTube channel. The CUDA titanium bonded 9-inch fillet knife is made with titanium bonded steels and alloys, making for a really strong blade, and they're really corrosion resistant. These are, these are full tang knives with a no-slip plastic grip. The fillet knife has a great feel to it, as do all of the CUDA knives in this line. Okay, at number four, 
I've got the Gerber Controller 10-inch saltwater fillet knife. And yes, you can check out my full review of this knife system at the Inventive Fishing YouTube channel. This is a damn fine fillet knife. The Controller Saltwater Fillet Knife System, not just a knife, but a full-on fillet system. It's part of Gerber's new saltwater tool series. It features a handle design with guide fins and tactical hydro tread grip to give you a lot of control and a sure grip even in the slimiest cleaning conditions. The blade is a full tang 9CRL18MOV steel blade, and it's tough and corrosion resistant. The blade has got just enough give or flexibility when working with large fish and is optimized for corrosion resistance, which is great when working in saltwater conditions. It's also got a great mirror polish on the blade to add to that corrosion resistance. I like how this blade's hold, blade holds its edge, and even after cleaning a slew of fish, which I have done with this blade, the blade is still sharp. Conveniently, too, as part of the overall fillet system, the included sheath has a sharpener built in for honing the edge. The sheath itself is well vented to aid in drying, too. Okay, we are down to the top three. And holding that number three position is another classic fillet knife, the Rapala Fish and Fillet Knife. You know, the one with the wooden handle and the leather sheath. That's a classic. And I think I had one by the time I was five. Admittedly, I also have a few Rapala Hawk Filet knives, but the Fish and Filet is the really, you gotta have Rapala knife. Now, you probably don't know, what you do, probably don't know is that the Rapala Fish and Filet knife is actually made by Martinini for Rapala, and that's why it looks to have the family lineage of the Martinini finished fillet knife I have in my number seven position. But as the Rapala webpage says, it's the Rapala Fish and Filet knife that, and I quote here, taught the world to fillet. And you got to believe that's true since Rapala has sold over a hundred million of these knives. It's probably the most widely used fillet knife in the world. You got to love that classic birch handle and Laplander leather sheath. It's got a full tang blade and is made from hand ground European stainless steel. Flat out a classic fillet knife. Okay, you know it. I know it. We all know that if you're going to talk about fillet knives, we cannot get away without giving props to the Bubba blade. So I have the Bubba 9-inch Flex Filet Knife at number two. Now, Bubba Blade's got a lot of great fishing and other cleaning knives, but I'm focusing here on their classic 9-inch Flex Filet Knife, a knife I really need to review for the Inventive Fishing video gear reviews, but just haven't gotten around to. This is a top-tier filet knife. It's 15 inches long with a 9-inch blade. It's got that famous no-slip grip handle, and the blade is so sharp. The blade is made from high-carbon stainless steel that is then coated in a titanium nitrate coating. Just one of the best fillet knives out there, and Bubba Blade is just doing fantastic things with knives. Okay, quick recap of my top 10 fillet knives before I give up the number one. At number 10, Cabela's Alaskan Guide Fillet Knife. At number nine, Buck Clearwater Fillet Knife. At number eight, Kershaw's 7-inch Clearwater Fillet. At seven, Martinini Finish Filet Knife. At six, Cast King Spartacus Filet Knife. At five, Kuda's Titanium Bonded Filet Knives. At four, Gerber's Control 10-inch Saltwater Filet Knife System. At three, Rapala's Fish and Filet Knife. At two, Bubba 9-inch Flex Filet Knife. And my number one favorite filet knives are unquestionably 
Cuda's Professional Series, six, seven, and nine-inch fillet knives. Talking about those black-bladed, blue and black-handled fillet knives that just outperform any other mass-market knife I've used. And yes, if you want to see my full review of these knives, you can watch the video gear review on the Inventive Fishing YouTube channel. Now, these knives are super in every aspect. The USA 40A corrosion-resistant stainless carpenter steel blade are as sharp as any blade I've ever used. The precision ground edge is beyond razor sharp. The full tang construction and the 47-layer compressed coal-molded micarta handles give you confidence and control when using these knives. Those no-slip handles are as secure as can be. Now, seriously, I have a half a dozen of the CUDA Professional Series knives, including two of the fillet knives, and they are my go-to knives for cleaning fish. In fact, I tend to reach for my CUDA Professional knives more than I do any of my other kitchen knives when preparing fish or meat. And no, CUDA does not sponsor me. I've just learned to respect these knives to the point that they earn a number one spot in my top 10 fillet knives countdown. So that is this week's Top 10 Countdown, and as always, I'm sure you have your thoughts about fillet knives, so feel free to reach out to me at sid at inventifishing.com to tell me just how right I am about these knives, or I suppose if you want to tell me I'm wrong, you should feel free to email me too. I can delete those emails just as easily as any other. And of course, if you've got knives you think I ought to be looking at, let me know, or if you're a manufacturer and you want me to look at your knives, shoot me a line. As always, if you'd like a fishing professor's top 10 about a particular fishing-related thing, just send me an email, and I'll see about adding it to my list for future top 10s. And that wraps up this week's really sharp top 10. Let's get back to it. Oh, wow. I guess that brings us to the end of another great episode. And since I just can't seem to master the art of the cliffhanger, I guess you already know what's coming up next week. Another great interview, another informative bourbon break, and another inspiring top 10 in which I'll count down my top 10. Ba -ba -ba -ba. You'll just have to wait and see. And there's the cliffhanger. Hey, I want to thank Jeff Weekly, the editor of Florida Sportsman Magazine, for that great conversation today and for letting me live out my fantasies of being a fishing writer. Thanks, Jeff. I know, I know, deadlines, deadlines, deadlines. Personally, I prefer fishing lines to deadlines. I also hope my top 10 list of my favorite fillet knives gave you a slice of cutting-edge information, and I hope you get the chance to try out a bit of that Woodford Reserve double oak bourbon. Before I sign off today, I do have a message for our brothers and sisters out there behind the line. The fish is out of season. I say again, the fish is out of season. As always, please be sure to share the broadcast with everyone you know. And of course, if you have a comment or question about anything on this week's show or have recommendations for future top tens, bourbon breaks, interviews, or information about specific fishing-related issues, please feel free to email me at sid at inventifishing.com or leave a reply in any of the comment sections for any of the podcast platforms you use to listen to the broadcast. Hey, be sure to follow Inventive Fishing on Twitter, Instagram, and friend us on Facebook at Inventive Fishing. And be sure to check out all of the great video content over on the Inventive Fishing YouTube channel, which includes great gear reviews, new product introductions, and a mess of other golden content. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, this is Sid Dobrin, the fishing professor. Fish on.
The Fishing Professor Show is copyrighted by Inventive Fishing, LLC. Any rebroadcast of the podcast without the consent from Inventive Fishing, LLC is strictly prohibited. Fish on!